Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. We have a great program for you today. You know, uh, conversations about race are important, but they aren't easy, are they? Well, in his honest and hopeful new book, Pastor Isaac Adams doesn't just show you how to have the race conversation. He begins it for you. In talking about race, gospel hope for hard conversations, Adams introduced you to a cast of diverse characters in a fictional, racially charged tragedy. As you meet each person in the unfolding narrative, you'll learn how to better understand varying perspectives and responses to racism. Adams brings us back to God's word to find the wisdom we need to speak gracefully and truthfully about racism for the glory of God, the good of our neighbors, and the building up of our churches. Talking about race is a pastoral invitation to faithfully combat the racism so many of us say we hate while maintaining the unity so many of us say that we want. Isaac Adams serves as the lead pastor of Iron City Church in Birmingham, Alabama, where he lives with his wife and children. Prior to moving to Birmingham to pastor Iron City Church, Adams served as a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He's the founder of United We Pray, a ministry devoted to prayer about racial strife, especially between Christians. And he's here today to talk about his new book, Talking About Race. Welcome, Pastor Isaac Adams. Hey, Jared, thank you for having me, brother. Uh, I I got to ask you, because I'm asking everybody, because it's a miserable day here in Kansas City, and I'm going, <laughs> I'm actually going to be in so Birmingham. I'm going to be in Birmingham in two weeks, so I want to know, what's the weather like in Birmingham? Oh, man. Okay, okay. I thought we were talking football for a second. Um, oh, no, we can talk football if you want. Oh, that's why I was like, is that the misery? <laughs> um, man, right now, it's it's miserable here, too, man. It's it's rainy. Okay. It's and I'm still figuring out Birmingham weather, but it's crazy. It's it's, okay. not, it's hot. It's cold. It's everything. So okay, let's talk about football for a second. So, you where are you from originally? Where did you? So I'm I grew up, up in Washington D.C. Just oh okay. Just got a team name, the Commanders. So yeah, what do you think about that? So I gotta I gotta tell you, man. Um, I'm a Washington fan. From childhood, second grade, oh. I, I grew up in South Texas. All my family were Dallas Cowboys fans. Out of spite in the second <laughs> grade, I said, forget these jokers. I'm going to root for their arch rival, which at that there time was the Washington Redskins. And yes. so was a Washington fan all, all, that. all through adolescence. So when I was in the sixth grade, um, I'm assuming I'm a little bit older than you, so uh, maybe you're itty bitty. Maybe hopefully, uh, when Doug Williams won the Super Bowl, this was in 1989. When we when were you born? Uh, Jared, not to discourage you, the year that I entered the world was 1989, and that by oh, because I'm born in December. So <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Well, yeah, yeah. So I think it was 89. So anyway, yeah, it was the the Doug Williams Super Bowl. They beat the Denver Broncos 42 to 10. Wow. It's the greatest thing in the world when you're like 10, 11, 12 years old uh -huh. and your team wins the Super Bowl. Uh -huh. It was oh, the yeah. greatest thing in the world. Oh, At yeah. that time, it was the biggest point differential. They set all kinds of records wow. in that game. And so, uh, you know, kind of, you know, pulled for them out through high school. So today, um, well, I mean, this will come out in a, in a, you know, probably a couple of months. But the day we're recording this is the day Washington has announced its new name. Yes, yes. I got to ask you, what do you think about the commanders? What's your I mean, so I walked out and my, 
my wife was like, DC got a new team name. And I was like, really? Finally, what is it? <laughs> she was like, the commanders. And she probably saw my face visibly fall. Like, oh, like, no. The commander of, of all, like, there was. What were you hoping for? What, what, what I mean, like, there was like, I mean, I know, and like, this, I mean, maybe it'll impinge upon our conversation with talking about race and wanting to be sensitive. And yet, I thought there was like stuff with like the Red Wolves or something like that. Like, okay. and I was just like, it sounds like the Senators, like the old Nationals name. That's right. Like, I'm like, is that like a George Washington? Or worse, the Washington Generals, right? Yeah, the, right. The basketball right. team that always loses to the Globetrotters. It could be right, like- right. So I was just, I don't know. I just thought, I mean, I'm sure, like, it, I'm probably, I'm probably a true kind of Washington disgruntled fan and would be unhappy with okay. that. So. Well, I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. It it sits okay with me. I'm sure it'll grow on me. When yeah. when they were the Washington football team for a couple of years, yeah. <laughs> when that came out, I was like, that's so weird. But it grew on me. I really actually came to like just the that's Washington funny. football team. So just, hey, it's you clear, know? you know, it's, it's clear. <laughs> that's so, right. like, hey, what like, are we? Hey, we're the football team. <laughs> that's right. It's like, we are the. <laughs> are you there? I got you. Yeah, yeah. Did I lose you? All right, there you go. <laughs> that's what we get for going for some banter on there. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. All right. Hey, let's, so let's talk about your book. On. Yeah. Talking, talking about race, gospel hope for hard conversations. My first question for you is why does it feel harder than ever? I know it's not harder than ever, but at least in my lifetime, it feels like yeah, it's man. harder than ever to have this conversation and, and in, in the church. Um, why is it, why does it feel harder now? That's a great question, man. And in writing this book, I because I'm basically answering a why question in the book. Like the central question is why is it so hard to talk about race? Yeah. And um in answering a why question, I discovered that rarely is the answer just one thing, right? Uh I think there's a confluence of factors, whether they be historical, whether they be theological, whether they be sociological, that combine to make uh this kind of difficulty. And then on top of that. Uh, you'll have different perspectives of some people being like, it's always been hard in my life and has never been hard. But I think what you have, I think just to give you a couple of reasons, what you have over the like, let's just take the last 10 years of the shooting of Trayvon in 2012, Mike Brown, 2014, and then George Floyd, you have these, and then with a whole host of other kind of shootings and almost this horrifying genre that's come about is you have these real three kind of quakes uh, that uh, tremor in this evangelical community that we are in. Uh, and you feel churches feel the kind of aftershocks of those. And what you find is like, hey, where we might have had theological agreement that we thought informed all of our kind of cultural perspective, cultural agreements or cultural perspectives or political agreements and political perspectives, we realized that wasn't the case. And so I think we are freshly dealing with, uh, at least in the new generation, you know, we've been joking about age, but I think we are really freshly dealing with this conversation that while historic, we're wrestling with anew. So that'd be just, just one kind of, uh, one kind of answer I'd give. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, the thing that you allude to just in terms of those, there's multiple you know, factors here, multiple threads in here. I, I've I've thought, and it's not just the race conversation, but it's a, that's a piece of a larger right. conversation about justice and 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 other things. 
I, I feel like it's a not. That's how I've, I've thought about it over the last four, six years or so, that yep. there's this this tangle of things. And and, and I'll be honest, I, I want to understand how we untangle it, but I don't know. Like, what thread do you pull on first? How do you? And it just well, feels so difficult to have the even, you know, to begin well, to speak exactly, about it. That's exactly right, Jared. Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. But one, right. one kind of image I use when I often teach on race and racism is that uh, race is the Velcro issue. And so many things stick to it. So this is why it's hard to talk about. And I think if we appreciate the difficulty of the conversation, we'll actually better appreciate each mm-hmm. other. So if you actually understand how long 26.2 miles is, you will better run the race if you think I'm just running 800 meters, right? Uh, it doesn't mean the race won't be hard. but y'all, And I think if we want to run in this marathon of race, racial justice, we actually want to understand the, the track before us. Uh, and so, but it, with race being the Velcro issue, uh, you know, everything, it seems, sticks to it. Housing, economics, politics, education food distribution. So when, I, so when if you find when you're talking about this thing, you're actually talking about four things, one of which maybe you're competent to actually speak about. Right. And that's what makes it so hard to talk yeah. about. And you would think that would uh, increase the grace in this conversation when sadly it seems uh, it does just the opposite in our fallen hearts. Well, w- one of the things I, p- I appreciate about what you're doing with this book is bringing the um, I guess if I can use a phrase, the the clarity of the gospel, or at least the the kind of reset of the gospel for Christians yeah. to, to to talk about these things, or at least to think about talking about them um, from you know through that lens, because it's this has become such a politicized uh, conversation, and and to some extent, you know, understandably so, as you just said, it, this is a Velcro subject, so it ends up. Yeah you know, um, open up the door to have to talk about education and all these things. But what happens, I think, is when you want to talk about race or you just even mention the subject, the first thing that even a lot of evangelicals go to is a political mindset of that's liberal or conservative or that's, you know, progressive or traditionalist or or, or whatever it is. And, And we've jumped ahead of what does the word actually say? What is, you know, how does the gospel help us to think about this? Um, one of the, you know, the conceits of the book or the, um, uh, you know, the premise is, is driven in the beginning by this fictional story that you've, that you tell you, you give us a narrative, uh, to kind of illustrate the complexity and the difficulty of the conversation, but also just to kind of give us some insight. Um, you see, you know, yeah. stories fiction does for us, um, what, you know, in some respects, good history books do for us as well, which is to give us kind of the insider perspective, to give us the the insight of, of personality and motivation and character. Why did you tell this fictional story? What's the purpose of that? And what do you hope it'll accomplish for the person who picks up the book? Yeah, I've, the reason I told a story is the same reason, <laughs> I hope, uh, that Nathan told David a story. Okay. Uh, in Second Samuel 12. So uh, the best stories, or at least the best parables, uh, they're not just stories, they're mirrors. And what I was trying to do was hold up a mirror to folks to be like, where do you find yourself uh, in this story? And you and stories are just powerful. You know, we see the wisdom of Jesus using them so much. Uh, but, you know, David is all in before he realizes, wait, 
I'm actually the villain in this story. And then, you know, we get Psalm 51 and you see the contrition. And so, and not, and I think this is just kind of something God has ingrained into how people work and how we relate. So I think, you know, you look at it, you know, The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson, this tome. And the reason it it reads so beautifully and powerfully, and it's a history book on the Great Migration, but she tells it through the lenses of these three stories. And so I remember, you know, just wrestling with this book over and over again, and I sought counsel from uh, someone and like, not even, it was not even this project. It was actually, I was talking to Beatty and I was like, and I was quick in my kind of didactic writing to hop to kind of labels, conservative, progressive, whatever. And he was like, man, don't, he was like, give me Mike and give me Matt and tell me the different, tell me who they are. Because Jared, you know, you are not just the sum total of your political opinions. You're much more than that as a human being made in God's image. And we are complex and that's why this conversation is complex. So a story allowed me, I think, uh, to get more into the complexity of the matter than just kind of didactic, like, here's what people on the right say, because then I'm assuming what the right even is. And maybe you don't actually identify that, or maybe, you know, three out of 10 things you actually line up with the right on. But you're, So I'm trying to tell the story of Jared more than I'm telling the story of quote unquote, the right or the left or the center. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's a couple of um, aspects to it that really make the um, make the uh, the possibility of beauty in in your work. The first is, I think, you know, we, when you're just throwing out facts or data um, th- that can be helpful, yeah. but it doesn't tend to create a sense of empathy or, you know, listening to. Yeah. Some or 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 just you know as you said to see someone as an image bearer right you, you don't yeah. want to see even a you know people that you care about you don't want to just see them as the as the sum of the the data of their history or the facts of of their history that that's an important consideration but it right. doesn't give you an empathy for them as image bearers so there's beauty there but then also just the reality that the gospel is a story and that's right works out in our lives in in personal and surprising and complex ways so to illustrate that I think is actually a, a really um, smart and and uh, um, clever in in the good sense um, sort of thing. You you in the second half of the book, you sort of approach the question of is uh, of of the possibility of talking about race across color lines. And this yeah. maybe is kind of a circling back to my first question. But you know, I remember in the you know in the early '90s, kind of the rise of the men's movement in evangelicalism, promise keepers and some of those uh-huh. things. Yep. And, you know, there was a lot wrong with, with that stuff. You know, I certainly, you know, it's, uh, you know, it was somewhat attractional, somewhat um, aspirational rather than gospel centered and things like yep. that. But one of the things that was, was sort of heavy, um, you know, heavily emphasized was uh, what used to be called racial reconciliation or just the concept of, of unity yeah. among, you know, uh, among diversity. And and it seemed to be something that was uh, you know that uh, you know different this you know ethnicities had uh, you know mutual affinity for and you know I don't think they were solving you know the race issue in America or anything like that but there just seemed like you could talk about it right so whether their solutions were the best or whether it was more kind of a kumbaya thing than it was actually getting to the root of you know some of the things that ail us as a as a culture 
uh, you can set that aside, but at least no one seemed embarrassed by the conversation. Yeah. And, you know, I grew up in the, you know, seventies and eighties and, and, and early nineties. And certainly we, we've had the, you know, the same issues, but it felt like you could talk about these things, even across, um, across the color lines. But the, the very fact that you're addressing the issue, I think, um, speaks to the, I guess it's a, it's a question now. Can we even, yeah. Can we even do, talk? Do we have to silo <laughs> yes, <laughs> to have these yes. conversations? So tell us what your answer is and then sort of elaborate for us. How, you know, how do we approach uh, the conversation? Yeah. I mean, my answer is my short answer is I hope so. And the reason is I'm like, Jared, surely if we believe that the spirit of God could raise Christ from the dead and that same spirit resides within us, as Romans 8 says, surely this is possible. Surely if Ephesians 2, you know, 11 through 22 is true, that Jew and Gentile have become one in Christ, surely this is possible. So my short answer is, I hope so. And I think, you know, it gets back to that why question, which is the why, you know, because, you know, I mentioned several factors earlier, whether it be sociological, cultural, theological, uh, there's also technological, which is like, you know, when you see when my mind has been trained on Twitter to reduce that person to a whatever they have said in 180 characters or 280 or whatever it is, uh, you know, that's a difference that isn't necessarily, it sounds trite, but when we're, when we're in this kind of age that we find ourselves in, you find, where do we find so much of this nastiness happening on social media? You know, where do we even find just so much of our information on social media? And so, you know, one, there's a reason why in third John, though Twitter did not exist in that day, uh, I think it's verse 14. He says, I got a lot of things I want to say to you. <laughs> I'd rather not write with write in ink, with, yeah. with, uh, with, with ink, right? Uh, like I'd rather talk to you face to face. And so, uh, you're right. Like, okay, is that necessarily going to resolve all the systemic issues? Well, no, but uh, racism is a monster with many heads and we're going to need many different avenues to get after it. And that does certainly include, uh, speaking to one another. And so insofar as society and our churches notwithstanding have grown more polarized in this age for whatever ugly constellation of reasons, uh, it seemed like, okay, yo, like 12 years ago, this just wasn't the case. Right. And maybe in 50 years, hindsight will be 2020 and we'll be like, ah, yeah, that was the reason. Um, but, you know, do we want to say, you know, this presidential candidate created these problems or he revealed these problems? You know, the answer is probably the answer probably is yes, on some level uh, to both things. And that's the kind of complexity I'm trying to get at and appreciate uh, in the story. So I hope I am, I'm answering your question. Uh, but in terms of getting at it, what I'm trying, the metaphor I really work with in the, in the book is this metaphor of a mask. Now, there's an asterisk here. This was all pre-COVID. So uh, the book <laughs> I originally wanted to title, uh, the book, We Wear the Mask. Uh, in honor of this uh, historic poem written by a Black Christian um, and that I opened up the book with. Uh, and then the editor, then COVID hit and the editor was just like, yeah, that's just not going to work. Uh, <laughs> like we needed a new title. Uh, but what I was getting at was um, after Ahmaud Arbery was gunned down and now I can say murdered, um, uh, African-American actor Sterling K. Brown went live on Facebook and talked about 
how he was, he went for a run in his mask, you know, during COVID's outbreak and said, you know, as a black man, I feel like I've always been wearing a mask in some capacity. And that's exactly what Paul Lawrence Dunbar said in 1896. And it showed me how, like, I think actually uh, that teaches us something about everyone's experience that whether or not we wear them with equal amounts of difficulty or equally good reasons, all of us, in a sense, are feeling like we're wearing these metaphorical masks. And the church should be the one place where it is safe to drop your mask, no saving face, we're all sinners before this cross, and we should be able to have this difficult conversation because we have the resources of the gospel, and it's the world that should be tribalized and balkanized and tearing each other apart. But in the church, we should actually be coming closer together. We should actually be healing, not inflicting pain, uh, helping one another heal, helping each other carry burdens, not making them heavier. And so I was basically getting at the dilemma I saw that the church, churches, uh, too many of them have become masquerade balls where we're just kind of grinning and bearing it. And we can't even deal with the honest uh, issues that we know are there. And when we're called to live just lives, Satan is pleased for us to kind of just, I'll just hold my cards close to my chest, do my thing, and we won't talk and the problems will continue. Yeah. W- what do you say, Isaac, to um, people who say things like just talking about these issues stirs up the problems, that we wouldn't have these problems if we didn't, if we didn't keep talking about them and rehearsing the the issues, right? What's the, what's your response to someone who says something like that? Yeah, my response is, uh, you know, brother, sister, I understand the point, you know, that like, okay, just talking about this uh, resurrects a dead problem. Can't we just move on? Um, But I would just, uh, I would just suggest if you look at some of the communities in which uh, racism has taken its toll, it's you it's it's not the, that community has not just moved on um and if we are to bear one another's burdens and receive one another i think we want to honor each other's experiences and frankly we don't treat any other sin like this that as <laughs> if this sin has had an expiration date like no one commits that sin it's that sin was committed in 1950 but we're in 2022 you know you know and uh, and and so we need to stop. It's like, no, we constantly, that's what sinners do. We sin. And we're very creative in how we sin. <laughs> and so the ethnic partiality that we saw in the book of Esther, you know, the cultural partiality that we see in Acts 6, uh, the, you know, whether we saw it in, you know, Germany, whether we saw it in South Africa, we definitely also saw it in America. And it actually got so deep into the psyche that uh, we thought it was normal. And in fact, that historic Baptist church, of which we love, which grandma and grandpa got married, and, you know, mom got baptized, actually, it was one of the last, it was one of the most resistant places to integration. And so we actually want to think about why is this church so white? Why is this community so white? And does this bear anything upon us as Christians to go therefore and do? Yeah. And doesn't the gospel give us the the courage that we need to have, the, you know, have hard conversations, gives us, you know, the confidence yeah. that we need to give hard conversations. Yeah. You, you certainly don't solve anything by avoiding something, but if we really do believe that our our, you know, our hope is in God and that we're unified in Christ, 
we we should be liberated to have yeah, difficult conversations right. and and have courage to do it. What are the risks uh, if we don't make efforts to have this conversation? If we just sort of all say, you know what, it's this is too much trouble. Um, it's it's too it's too difficult. We're just not going to do it. What are what are the things that we risk, especially uh, um, in terms of the church and and yeah. Yeah, a few risks uh, that I'll think through. Number one is uh, I think we risk um, encouraging people unwittingly to run to worldly solutions and ideologies. Okay, my pastor is not going to talk about it. This person's at least willing to talk about it. So I'm going to go over here. Mm. Uh, That's not good. Uh, Number two, I think we risk holding back the hope the very hope that the gospel gives us. So I think one of the reasons people are so quick to put up their masks is because they feel, and one of the reasons people are so quick to be defensive is because, uh, or to, you know, kind of clear their name is because they think being called a racist is the worst thing that could happen to them. (laughs) And what is going on in that mindset is thinking that, you know, racism has somehow become the unforgivable sin because it's become so taboo. Uh, and what the gospel says, and we want to, what I think a kind of gospel lens gives us is that, right, we don't want to treat racism as the sin that can't ever be committed. And we also don't want to treat racism as the sin that can't ever be forgiven. Mm. And Jesus got on that cross for some racist people. Uh, not only racist, but on the cross for sinners, period. But this is one sin that has our country has particularly uh, in its past certainly been given to. And so we want to think about that. And so the gospel gives us that hope, Jared, to drop like Pilgrim that burden and say, man, it, it speaks to even this wound, even this scar. And if we just don't talk about it, well, then we're actually letting people just like you go on and just keep carrying that burden and that shame. Uh, I'll just give you one more that I think of. I think we run the risk of um, becoming the priest and the Levite walking past uh, the broken and bloodied man on the side of the road. You know, so uh, I think we run the risk of saying peace, peace when there is no peace. And, um, you know, maybe I'll just close with this. I think a lot of the times and maybe just because I really wrote this book. I wrote this book is a pastoral word for the moment. So there's lots of prophets in the race conversation. And I and pastors are to be prophetic, and I think some of them are worse, and uh, some of the prophets are worse, some of them are better. <laughs> uh, but what I think there are a few pastors in the conversation, and I'm trying to give a pastoral word. And so I think as pastors, we want the unity of the church. We don't want dissension. Um, but I think honestly, if if all we have is the boat never being rocked, uh, what it might show is that our congregation is just really homogenous. And they just think about everything the same way. Yeah. So I want to encourage a pastor, especially after the last few years we've had um, with everything going on, uh, to see, hey, some of that clamoring is actually a sign that you have diverse perspectives in your church. And those people are actually trying to fight to be faithful to Jesus and stay in the same church together. We don't want people just running to their silos and not having any conflict. Right. Because then they're not actually really wrestling with things on every level. So it's a dance. I get it. I'm not saying all we want is clamoring. I don't think we just want uh, peace, peace when there is no peace, especially in a community or in a country with so many segregated communities in which it's easy to never have to interact with the people on the other side of the tracks. Mm. 
That's great. The the not you know the the idea of, of unity in 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 the church, which is held out as really um, the way some people describe it, almost seems like a pipe dream. <laughs> yeah, right. And and yet the reality of what Christ has done on the cross and out of the tomb and in His ascension to constantly intercede for us, I, I have to believe that He is um, providing the power that we need to, to meet. You know. Yes. He's the mediator of a, of a better covenant. Yes. And if we're going to be distinct from the world, we have to have the courage to face these things and to address what needs to be addressed and right-size what needs to be right-size so that it, it becomes possible for, for you know, someone to look at the church and go, that's different. And right. the risk that we run is we don't look that different. People look at the church and we sound just like the world because of, you know, the, of, because of our rhetoric and our disinterest and. Right. And we're, we're not. So, and just, you know, so we were talking. We're just about, religious. That's the only difference. Is, okay. Yeah. It's just like, I mean, this is just, this is just a religious outpost of this political party. Right. Effectively. And, you know, just to mention one more risk, I think there is certainly evangelistic risk because in John yeah. 13, 35, Jesus is saying, by this, the world will know that you are my disciple. The authenticity of your discipleship comes down to this. What is it? How you love one another, actually. How this family loves one another uh, is a billboard, whether positive or negative, to the world. In John 17, when Jesus is praying for our unity, he says, Lord, I'm praying for this so that the world may believe that you sent, that the Father sent the Son. And so there's certainly an evangelistic hazard here if we don't start, if we don't stop. Uh, you know, one verse I see you tweet uh, uh, is that Galatians verse of biting and devouring one another. There is evangelistic stake at play there. But if all if I walk into a church and I'm like, well, this is just a, a gathering of people who are in the same socioeconomic class who all vote the same, they'd probably be here even if Jesus wasn't here. And so <laughs> right. it's like we really want to think through, is our witness compelling? Is it, is it, is it saying something to the world about, hey, there's something different going on here? And you don't have to wear a mask here. And actually, we disagree on nine out of 10 things, but we agree on this one thing. And that's reason enough for me to lay down my life for this brother, this sister. That's great. We have the opportunity to be uh, a living apologetic um, yes. for the yes. gospel. And I think your book is a good introduction to that concept, a good starting point. The book is called Talking About Race. Gospel Hope for Hard Conversations is out from Zondervan Reflective. The author is Isaac Adams. Brother, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, Amen. Go Washington Commanders. Thanks for having me, bro. <laughs> That's really right. Good to talk to you, Jared. It's good talking with you. Dear listener, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Share us with your friends. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.